Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share, she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal Series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, Down There, Sexual and Reproductive Health, The Wise Woman Way. And Abundantly Well, Seven Medicines, The Wise Woman Way, the newest book in the Wise Woman Herbal Series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Knees, a cancer diagnosis, adaptogens for long life, and abundantly well companion course, wisewomanschool.com. You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Sarah Ellen. Hi, Susan. How are you this evening? I am doing well. We made elderflower champagne this week. Oh, how divine. There's, this has been a very flowerful year, and 
there are elders blooming that I didn't even know existed around me. <laughs> so, so many of them. Ones today as well. You made some elderflower champagne today too. No, I didn't do that, but I found two new elderberry bushes that I did not even know existed at the farm that I helped tend. And wow, yes. they are loaded with flowers. Yes, just covered with flowers. It's so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was somebody here at the work weekend. We did it on Fridays. We bottled it on Saturday, and she said, oh, how did you... How did you do it? And I didn't have an extra copy of the recipe. I said, just go online and look for Susan Weed's elderflower champagne recipe. And then later on, I thought, I wonder if she could get it. And so I, that's what I entered in the search engine. And sure enough, it comes up really easily. So if you're looking for that elderflower champagne recipe, just ask the Internet, and it will give it to you, both of them, mm. both the Simply Living one and Arena's one. One has cream of tartar and one has vinegar. They taste slightly different. One's a little sweeter than the other. And to tell you the truth, I usually open a bottle of both of them and pour them together. Wow. <laughs> this one's a little I dry. The other's a little fun. sweet. Together, they're just right. The one that I was treated to at your home was so delicious. I can just say, mmm, so yummy. Yay, elderflower champagne. And you know, the herbal wine season is not over once dandelion stops flowering. You can use that dandelion wine recipe to make wine with any flower. Is there a lot of red clover around you? Good, make red clover wine. Later on in the year, make Queen Anne's lace wine. What flower is around you that's edible, and there are hundreds of edible flowers? You can make wine from it using the same recipe that you use for the dandelion flower wine. There's two small things in that recipe that seem to be needing maybe a little explanation. There's an instruction to toast a piece of bread, soften some yeast, and spread the yeast on the bread, and then to float that in the wine. And the reason for doing that is so that you don't get so many yeast bodies in your wine. In other words, big commercial winemakers just throw the yeast into the wine because they strain it and filter it and strain it and filter it literally many, many times. And we're not going to do that. We're not going to be straining it or filtering it really very much at all. So it's, you get a good ferment without getting all those yeast bodies in there. And I have had people say, oh, well, I took the toast and I floated it upside down because I wanted to be sure to get the yeast in with the stuff. And I thought, ah, right, right. if you're just going to throw the yeast in there, if you're going to put the toast upside down, you don't need the toast at all. The toast is like a little boat for the yeast to keep it up. And the mm. other thing is that some people have found that the dandelion wine especially goes into a pretty heavy secondary ferment when it's bottled. And those bottles can pop their tops or even explode if it's a thin bottle. So we put a balloon over them, and I was looking around the Internet for other home winemakers and what they were doing. And one person, instead of using balloons, she was a nurse, uses, you got it, examination gloves. <laughs> so creative. So if you don't have any balloons around, but you have a, like a, you know, a box of gloves that you use, probably not for examining people, probably for washing dishes, 
you could she she puts a pinprick in one of the fingers so that it doesn't explode. But I've never had to put a pinprick in my balloon. I don't think that, that it would explode. Maybe her wine was fermenting more strongly than mine. Hmm. Have you made any herbal wines? I have never made an herbal wine. It's, I've actually been thinking about that a lot lately because I've been looking at all of the red clover around. And um, But so maybe I'll give it a try after extra inspiration tonight. You know, one of the things that got me into making herbal wines was reading older herbals. And the older herbals often had doses in wine glassfuls. And I kept wondering why the dose was a wine glassful. Why is it? And then I realized it's one of those things like the admonition to put some heat under your oil when you're infusing it, which you don't have to do if you're using liquid oil. You only have to do if you're using an animal fat, a solid fat, or coconut oil, which is often solid at room temperature where I live. And it's, so it's one of those instructions that just gets carried on even when the thing you're doing is changing slightly. So even when it was that they were making a tea, they were still giving the dose in wine glassfuls because the alcohol-soluble components of plants, before you could just get yourself down to the liquor store and buy the liquor you wanted, when people didn't have that access, they got those alcohol-soluble compounds by making wine. Quite the idea, isn't it? Yeah, that makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, well, could you, like, make a wine tincture? Could you, like, take a plant and put it in white wine and then kind of have a, a wine tincture? And some plants do lend themselves to that if they have very volatile compounds, compounds that easily... Um, come out of the plant because they're not bound by the cell wall. But there's not enough alcohol generally in wine to set up osmosis. So you can, like, put sweet woodruff in white wine, and then you have may wine because it tastes of the sweet woodruff. Or you could throw some thyme or some rosemary or some sage in some wine, and the wine will definitely pick up that taste. But it's not really a tincture making the wine of the plant itself would be much more like a tincture. We made yellow flower wine in Germany, and it was black. Wow. We weren't sure that people were going to drink it out of wine glasses. It rather looked like you were in some macabre movie with the black wine in the glasses. So we served it as an aperitif in little aperitif glasses, and they're used to an aperitif being black. So totally, you know, met the eye criteria and the taste was a little bitter, like an aperitif would be, so it was perfect. <laughs> so nice. Yeah, so if it doesn't come out looking like wine, think about what else it could be. <laughs> 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 Presentation is half of the battle, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. It goes a long way. <laughs> it's a long, long way. Uh I wonder what calendula flower wine would taste like. Mm, wow. Mm. I wonder if it would be orange or what color? Would it be yellow, do you think? 
I don't know. Wow. The red clover line, of course, isn't red or even pink. Mm-hmm. Wow. That would be a fun one to try. Maybe that was the inspiration uh-huh. right there. <laughs> yeah. And let me remind everyone that when we're making fermented beverages, white sugar is needed. The yeast is going to eat the white sugar, and it is going to fart out alcohol. So don't go all, you know, crunchy there and try to, you know, like, use brown sugar or raw sugar, anything like that, because all of those things that are refined out of the sugar actually kind of slow the yeast down, and you don't get a good ferment. So you go right out to the supermarket. If you need to put a bag over your head, oh, we don't have to worry about bags anymore. We're wearing masks. No one will recognize you. (laughs) And buy white sugar for your elderflower champagne, for your red clover wine or whatever wine you're going to make. You're not going to be drinking or eating any of the sugar. It's for the yeast. You're feeding the yeast. Same thing I feed my sourdough bread. Now, I do feed my sourdough bread... um, the kind of more organic version of white sugar, since it's sourdough, it, it will take it. That's a stronger, sturdier yeast than your ferment, your wine and beer yeast. I don't make beer because it's very explosive, but this is a good time of the year to make beer, too. The weather's warm, good for ferments. Do you make beer? Hmm. I've never tried that either. So I, I don't know what's helped some really incredible nettle beer. And, of course, Stephen Booner has an incredible book called Sacred Healing Beers, mm. in which he has recipes for making beer out of, I don't know, maybe a 100 different plants. Again, with the same intention that we were going to ferment out the alcohol-soluble constituents so that beer and wine are not just the kind of generic things we think of them uh, as grape wine, you know, and hopped grain beer, but that they're much, much bigger categories. I've heard that book is amazing. I gifted it to a friend. I've also heard it's very complex. So It's very complex. I even... To say that I have read it all because I open it up and I read it here and there as the interest moves me. And I heard Stephen talk about it, and what he was saying was fascinating. He was saying that in um, the places where people lived, when people got married, the gifts were the yeast and the other things that they needed for their household. So they'd get a sourdough starter, they'd get a wine starter, they'd get a beer starter, they'd get a, a milk ferment starter, you know, they'd get their, the, you know, everything that they, all what they needed was not the, the goods, but the cultures of the culture. Mm. Spectacular. And I had wow. told the story of the one 
year that we did both sourdough bread and cheese in the same kitchen. You don't really think of cheese as a cultured food, but it is. And the sourdough organisms and the organisms for the cheese got together, had a wild party, and their offspring were juvenile delinquents. Everything started tasting funky. We had to actually desert the kitchen, wash it down with bleach. Oh, I hate the smell of bleach. Oh. Right, and ever since then, I have never made both cheese and sourdough bread in the same kitchen. Oh, wow. That is a good, good piece of knowledge to have. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Yeah, all those all those little thingies are floating around in the air, right? Mm-hmm. Right. That's how I got my sourdough starter. You know, Jennifer Sundstrom came and visited me, made sourdough bread, and a couple of months after that, I said, "Gosh, that was good sourdough bread she made. I have a hankering for it. I bet some of the yeast that she brought with her is still floating around in the air. I'm going to catch it." And I mixed together some white sugar, some warm water, and a little flour, and let it sit out. And sure enough. Oh. That yeast was still here. It said, do I see food? Yum, yum. Mm. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <gasps> Pretty amazing, huh? It is. And so is our guest tonight, Jacqueline Kane, a medical and and stop the pain specialist. She supports women in discovering the crucial hidden links between their physical pain and finances and their ability to live a full life. She's going to be here at 9 o'clock East Coast time. Stay with us or come back. Get a load of what Jacqueline is going to share with us. I'm sure it will be fascinating. How is your garden growing? The garden is growing pretty well. Our small food garden is doing pretty well. I did a three sisters garden. I've never done that before. So all three are coming up. Yay! <laughs> yeah. I'm a I'm a pretty lazy gardener. I don't I don't do much about following instructions other than reading how deep to put the seeds, and then I figure it's gonna go how it's gonna go. So, um, do pretty well. It's interesting. I have different um soils that I I did bring in a little bit of soil for this purpose um, and I select it carefully but it's really interesting to see the three different small beds um, are performing very differently and I'm really learning a lot about soil as it as it goes yes so fascinating huh mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, uh. so <laughs> yeah, we're we're really having just a perfect weather for plants this year, mm. and it's perfect weather for mushrooms too. I expect my woods to start exploding with mushrooms. And I saw already saw some uh, Amanita muscaria, in fact. Wow! 
yeah, the Sly Agaric, the psychedelic one, the one that's always uh, painted in the pictures of the witch out in the forest, right? The one with the, with the red top oh, and the wow. white dots on it. Christian oh. East, we have yellow-topped one with the white dots on it, and it's rained so hard the white dots are all washed away. But once you know it, you know it, even in its different guises. Mmm. Wow. Oh, fun. Yes, I've known people to experiment with using it as a psychoactive plant. It's not, um, it's not really desirable to my mind. Mm. And that's, that's one of the reasons why you don't see, like, a black market in it, right? Right. Right, like, it's like psilocybin is mostly illegal. Uh, but you could get psilocybin. I mean, anybody who wanted psilocybin really could get psilocybin. If they don't know somebody, they know somebody who knows somebody. Or if they don't know somebody who knows somebody, they know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. Really, it's only that far away from you. Right. Oh, but right. You wanted to, right. Right. But if you wanted to get Amanita muscaria, I don't think there's anybody out there selling it. It's not that much fun. Mm. It yeah, tends I only to really it. magnify one or more senses and magnify them almost to the excruciating point where you feel like you can hear things miles away. Or you can oh, taste what the people in the next department over are having for dinner. I mean, that kind of like, oh, could I please have a few barriers here? Wow. Wow, that sounds way too intense. <laughs> for most wow. people, it is. For most people, it's not much fun because it's so intense. Fortunately, it doesn't mm. last very long. Mm. And I've experimented both, both with eating it fresh, which you definitely get stronger results from, and drying it and smoking it. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. That, my experience with drying and smoking it was didn't do much. You mm. probably, you know, get as much from smoking roasted banana peel. <laughs> and back in the 60s, we roasted a lot of banana peel. <gasps> I admit to trying that once in college. It didn't do much. <laughs> right. <laughs> do we have anybody with any questions tonight? Uh, we have one caller that has already pressed one to say that they have a question, and we have many other callers on the line. I'll remind everyone that if you have a question for Susan tonight, please do press one and let us know. Oh, two more. So now we have three callers at this time with questions. Are you ready for the first? I am. Thank you, Sarah Ellen. All right. The first caller, you are calling from the 908 area code. From the 908, you are live with Yes, hi, hi. Susan. Uh, good evening, hi. Carol. From I was going to say this like from, Carol. Yeah, Carol from New Jersey. Hi, Carol. Hi. Hi. Yeah. Good to so, hear from um, you. I love you. Aw, sweet. Um, so, um, with the Linden, um, the Linden infusion, um, I thought you said something about do you after you brew it. Uh, do it overnight. Do you put more water on it the next day? The the you know the remainder. Both Linden and Comfrey of the five infusions that we use have mucilage, and mucilage right. 
is very soothing and healing, and mm. it's orally soluble in boiling water. So what I do is after I make the regular infusion, which is a nourishing infusion, and that hot water is going to get me minerals and polyphenols and all kinds mm. of compounds that I want, but it's right. not getting me much of that mucilage. So then I put cold water over. Oh, that's it, cold. Right. So I strain mm-hmm. the liquid out of the comfrey or the linden, mm-hmm. and then the right. stuff that I have left, I put half as much cold water as I yes. originally had hot water. So if I used half an ounce of linden and a quart of hot water to make the brew, then once I've strained that off and I don't squeeze it because I'm going to get it wet again, I use two cups <laughs> of cold water. And somebody said, well, do you have to bring it to boil? You don't. You could just let it right. sit in the refrigerator in the cold water. And it takes like 24 hours or so for the mucilage to slowly oh, seep out. But it will. Okay. Yes. I just have you put it on the stove and boil it up because then it's done and then you'll strain it and have it in. It seems like when people put things in the refrigerator, they often get shoved to the back and then months later <laughs> you pull out this rotting mess and what is it, you know? I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. Yes, yes. yes. Okay. Um, also, um, I had the the dissolvable um, stitches on my upper lip from the fall that I had, and um, uh, there's I, I, I asked you about a month and a half ago or more. You said. Comfrey uh, salve, which I was then religiously applying, went to the dermatologist for another thing. He looked at it and said, there's, there's a cyst there. So I just wanted to, and it's still a lump, you know, a small lump. And when you no, look it's still at the face on. formed where, that, where it was injured. Yes. 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 And when you say small, like the size of a pea? Um, mm, a, a very small, a small pea. Yeah, small oh, pea. Small. One of the little bitty baby ones. Okay. Yeah. Um, cysts are kind of tricky because mm. if you cut them out, you make more scar tissue, and most of the time they return. Exactly. Oh, wow. So they wow. Really, really don't like to cut them out. Because it just really oh, aggravates the whole situation. I had a dissolvable, yes. st- a dissolvable stitch that didn't dissolve it. It had to be cut out. Wow. And although it was really aggravating me, really aggravating me, it was a m- solid month of healing after they cut it out. Mm, boy. Yeah. So it was like, okay, that was not fun. At all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. You're you know, right. well, I think, and, and I, it just triggered a really kind of old rancor that I had because when I was giving birth to Justine, Justine's head was already out and the obstetrician wasn't there. And the obstetrician came in and was disturbed that I had already pushed Justine's head out and took his hand and pushed Justine's head back in my vagina so he could cut an episiotomy to make sure there was room for her head. God, yes, yes. And that Mm. scar tissue there has 
always bothered me, and that's where the stitch wouldn't dissolve. Oh, boy. It was the stitch that was adjacent to the episiotomy scar tissue. It was so interesting. Mm, very. Yeah. 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 So, so you're doing well? Yeah, but I, I would like to... Except for your cyst? Yeah, yeah. Yes, of course, the soapier plants, the soapier plants go one beyond mucilage, like chickweed and saponaria. And soaps dissolve cysts. Oh, so chickweed. I am probably more access to chickweed than sasap... What's that other one? Saponaria? Saponaria officinalis, also called bouncing bet. There's actually quite a bit of it around this year. You might be surprised. Oh, bouncing bet. Bouncing mm. bet is what mm. I'd call it. It's just kind of a cute yeah, name. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. 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 So with the chickpeas. And the saponaria is not considered safe for internal use, too soapy. The chickweed is about as soapy as you can get and still use it internally. Uh, but I would say, especially given that you're just dealing with a little cyst externally would be good. And or after you make the comfrey, um, just put a little bit of comfrey oh. leaf on a Band-Aid and stick it on the cyst. Oh, sleep with nice, it. nice. Yeah, that's good. And the comfrey make a poultice and put that on there, on the cyst? That's what I'm saying. Put a little bit of the comfrey yes. leaf from the yeah, infusion. Right. You've strained it. Just put it on yes, a yes. Band-Aid and then stick the Band-Aid yes. on where the cyst is, right? Because it's a little, it'll be to, totally covered by a Band-Aid, right? Yes, and the, but I meant to say the chickweed, make a poultice out of the You can make a poultice weed. with the chickweed, yes, you can. Even if it's gone up like into seed, it's not like that fresh greeny look. Where uh, I Yeah, I understand. If, if you can get any moisture out of it, then it's good. If it's, so, if it's dry okay. and yellow, then it's not going to work. Yeah, okay, awesome. And um, there was something else. So with the excess, thank you for that, Susan. For the extra greens that I have, um, one thing is that I made a, a greens soup out of them. I just took them all and, you know, uh, put them in a soup. And then the other ones I'm just going to freeze if I have extra, like, collard, kale, things like that. Just yes. freeze them up for the winter. Yeah. Yes. That's a great Cook idea. Cook them and freeze them. Make sure they're yeah, cooked well. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, cooked well. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. And um, that's great. And you did something. And it becomes even more important since the winter greens, the kale and collards in the winter, have made the Dirty Dozen list. They have? Yes. Wow. Mm. So you really want to get your good organic greens during the summer and fall, cook them up and freeze them because okay. if yes, you're going to yes. buy in the supermarket in the winter time mm-hmm. is right. not being grown with chemicals you want to eat. Right, right. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Susan. I just love I, you. Love you. Thank you. Hugs and hugs and hugs, okay. Carol. Hugs Green blessing. Bye. Bye-bye. Green blessing. All right, and then the next caller is calling from the 212 area code. From the 212, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. It's Lauren. 
Hey, Lauren. Hey, you sound like I was like just talking a... about you at dinner tonight with the new oh, apprentices. Uh-oh. Did somebody talking tell about you? How, how Lauren the Lesser became Lauren the Greater. <laughs> you sound like you're having such a good time today, are you? I, I've had a pretty good time today. It's been, yeah. Yeah, been, good, good. You know, the kind of day where you feel like, wait, maybe Mercury isn't retrograde anymore. Yeah, everything seemed to be working out today, too, for me. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm happier and like, whoa, this is a good time. (laughs) And I was telling them about how during your apprenticeship, you finally got to that point where you just like stood in the doorway and blocked my way and said, I have some things to say to you. And what a great breakthrough that was for you. Well, I could hear how you had pretty much got just like – mentally threw up your hands and said, I'm done. And then I entertained the thought of going home, and I said, hell no. And that was the turning point. You you, you, you pushed me to it, of course. Of course. <laughs> Pushing broad that I am. I still uh, work on some of that stuff, and I think about it. It's so vivid to me, and it was 19... 19- 98. Wow. I said it was 23 years ago, so I was pretty close on. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I am feeling so much better since your advice about my dizzy allergy and ear. I think this is my first day that I've been feeling What was happening with the dizziness? The what? Hmm? I was just about to ask you what was happening with your dizziness. Yeah, I only really briefly felt it. I, I've been kind of exhausted and wiped out. Today I feel like my energy is back, back, back. So, yay. Um, I, yay? I use a little bit of the OSHA um, sometimes once a day. I'm used to treating it very carefully, So I, but it's working really, really well. really helps a bit. Oh, hurrah. Yay, our buddy Osha. It's okay to use her gently a little bit? It certainly is. I know I won't, not that it'll turn me into a pumpkin, just that I don't want to use up something. It won't won't turn you into (laughs) a pumpkin. Well, it's a pumpkin that grows very far away from people, so that tells us that it doesn't want to be used a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a perennial root. And so we always want to be conservative with perennial roots because when we dig a perennial root, you know, that's it for the plant. You can plant the crown or a piece of it, but it's not ever going to be the same. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, you know, a little more awe, right, a lot more respect. Yes, 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 yes. But but you're in a situation now where it is really going to be helpful for you and will prevent your needing to take steroid drugs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't needed any kind of medication. Um, the herbal supports have been wonderful. Yay. A, yay, yay, yay. I have a nourishing herbal infusion question. Go ahead. I'm not as in love with 
red clover right now, and I'm having a without straw, which surprises me a little, which is okay, maybe pointing me towards something. But I was wondering if there were a couple of other herbs you would recommend to add to the rotation while I'm out of love with these ones. The reason that the ones that we use are the ones that we use Mm. It's because they are the herbs that are highest in protein. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Violet leaf is also high in protein, but it's kind of expensive. Ah. It's kind of bland. You know, it's a bland, gooey thing. <laughs> I, I, you know, I switched over to linden, which is actually low protein, but such a splendid anti-inflammatory. Yeah. Oh, because right. violet leaf got expensive, and people had some difficulty sometimes with the texture of it. Mm. In the summertime, I frequently have a quart of hibiscus made and just in the refrigerator so that I can just put some in a glass of ice water. Yum. That might be nice to add to, I don't know, I'm thinking... Yeah, and I talk about the sour tastes of summer. Uh Uh-huh. As summer goes on, more and more plants with sour tastes are available to us. Right, think about the wood sorrel and the sheep sorrel and five-finger ivy. And it's just, you know, wow. So there's the hibiscus, that sour taste. And hibiscus is coming on really strong as a medicinal herb. It's not very rich in protein. And I want your nourishing herbal infusions to really give you protein. Remember that I came up through reading Adele Davis, who was very, very, very much into protein. So my very early learning impressed on me that people do better when they have a lot of protein in their diet. But it's better if that protein does not come with huge amounts of calories. Ah, there is the sticking point, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, even beans are pretty calorie rich. Yeah, yeah. Nourishing herbal infusions give you that good vegetable protein with virtually no calories. So that's why you can't really, like, say, oh, hibiscus will replace right. red clover or oat straw. It won't because it doesn't have that. Chickweed is a lovely herb for nourishing herbal infusions. And going along with the sour taste, amla berry is a very sour ah. adaptogenic, right? And it makes a really nice lemonade kind of infusion. It's so sour that it's hard to just drink straight like the hibiscus. I usually dilute it. Uh-huh. The other thing that I do with amla berry infusion or hibiscus infusion is I pour them into an ice cube tray and freeze them and then drop those ice cubes into some other infusion. That is great. What a good idea. Yeah. Oh, with hibiscus it would be perfect. Exactly. You can also try adding... Other things. Mm-hmm. Comfrey infusion, for instance, is amazingly good with about 25% grape juice added. Huh. I went through a period where I tried juices, different kinds, but now I just love the comfrey as is. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, but great. What, Interesting. what would you want with the red clover? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. I'm not sure. You know, what would it? What would you know taste good with it? Raspberry juice, cranberry juice. I don't know. Oh, 
okay, I can experiment with that, yeah. And sometimes when I am kind of, you know, on the outs with an herb, I find if I switch over and start drinking it hot with honey, mm. that that really changes my relationship to it. Like sometimes I get to a point and I think I can't swallow another mouthful of nettle. And I say, okay, that's your cue to heat it up and put some miso in it. <laughs> I've never felt that way about nettle. I love nettle. <laughs> <laughs> but miso would be lovely soup. I love nettle soup. Yes, this whole journey that I have been on, because it has had so much to do with my guts, mm. um, has really taught me a huge amount about, uh, you know, what my body would accept and what happens when it wouldn't, when I, my body wouldn't accept infusions and what happened and how my tastes changed and how I got them back. It's been quite the adventure. Mm. The less infusion that I could drink, the more sweet I needed in my diet. Right, right, yes. That's what we find uh, apprenticing. When we have yeah. real nutrition, we don't need the stuff we thought we needed. Right. But when you can't take it in, you've got to do something else. Right. Oh, boy. Me in the honey jar. Huh. Well, I thought it was Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, could, I could only drink, you know, infusion if I put, like, three or four spoons of honey, and I'm like, I can't, I just, I'm going to have to shut my eyes. I can't even see you doing this. <laughs> but that's, that's what my body wanted. I said, all right, you need it, you got it. Every time I think about what you've gone through, you say something sort of off the cuff, I'm just in awe, and I, I know, I mean, the depth of that journey and your your willingness to, to, to be in it, my God, it really, really important stuff. Have you thought about writing it up? Well, maybe. I <laughs> was I was uh, really appreciating last year's apprentices today. I was feeling them so strongly and how amazing they were to be willing to come and apprentice with me when, so much of my teaching was laying down. Mm. Uh, and it was, I, 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 it, you know, I, of course, I was a, the very first woman to apprentice with me last year in apology because I wasn't even strong enough to yell at her. Oh, no, she miss, missed out. <laughs> uh, I love you, Susan. I love you, Laura. Thanks for calling it. Letting us know that you're feeling better. I'm so relieved. Thanks so much for all this information and support. Mm -hmm. Green blessings. Green blessings. All right. We have three callers that have pressed one and have a question to come on and speak with Susan. Our next caller is calling from the 732 area code. From the 732, you are live with Susan. Hello, Susan. Hi. Hi, this is Ruth from the Great Garden State. Hope things are well with you and yours. Thank you. I hope you, I hope all of your gardening is being prolific this year. Thank you. 
I have a question. You were, I believe you were saying, Farley, that eating peppers is not a good idea because they're, um, they cause inflammation. All kinds of peppers, even over to bell peppers, etc. From what I understood you to say, those shouldn't be consumed. Well, the bell peppers are a slightly different category. So let's go through this. A green bell pepper is literally that. It's green. It's not ripe. Would you eat a green potato? I might. It's not advised. The green and the potato and the green and the pepper contain a poison known as solanin which can make you throw up, among other effects. Okay. Most people, when I tell them this about green peppers, look at me, their jaws drop open, and they say, every time I eat green pepper, I burp and burp and burp. And those burps are full of the taste of green pepper. I say, no, they're full of the taste of solon, and they're full of the taste of a poison. And your body is going, I cannot believe you did this to me. So then we would say, okay, well, we want that bell pepper to get ripe. We want it to be red or orange, whatever color it's going to turn when it's ripe. And that's a great idea. And, of course, you know, ripe bell pepper, you know, beautiful red bell pepper is a fabulous source of vitamin C and carotenes. But if you've ever grown bell peppers, you know that from the point where you pick that ripe bell pepper until the point where it's a moldy mess is about two days. Okay. You better get it in and eat it, right? And so you have to wonder how they get those ripe bell peppers to the supermarket, and that's by spraying them with fungicide. And that's true even of organically grown food because the organic standards are standards for growing the food. Post-production doesn't count. Okay. So since I don't live in an area that grows peppers easily, I don't have any red bell peppers in my garden, and I'm not going to buy them. And because I really don't want to eat pepper, it's easier for me to say to people anything that sounds like or is pepper I don't eat. Okay. That way I don't have to go into details. Now the spicy peppers like black pepper and cayenne pepper, how do they make your mouth feel when you eat them? Spicy. Uh, what do you mean by spicy? Spicy is not a feeling. What's the sensation in your mouth? Okay. It's a, maybe a lively feeling. Well, if you consider burning in pain being alive, um, perhaps you might want to consider finding a sadist for a friend to satisfy your masochistic tendencies. Because the sensation of pepper in your mouth is painful and burning. If you don't want a child to suck its thumb, you put cayenne pepper on it, and the child doesn't put its thumb in its mouth because it hurts. 
if you don't want a dog to lick its paws, you put cayenne pepper on it, and the dog will stop licking because it hurts its mouth to lick the pepper. Uh, okay. And I'm really wondering if you're kind of really don't notice that it's burning and painful? No, I don't. So you're well along into addiction then. Okay. In the same way that someone who's addicted to tobacco doesn't cough and they smoke. Because when we consume something that's poisonous to us, our bodies adapt to it and kind of close down the switches after a while on letting us know that we're hurting ourselves. But I will tell you that after spending time living here and eating a diet that contains no pepper, about 99% of the apprentices never go back to eating pepper. And they say the first taste of it makes their eyes water and their skin crawl. Hmm. Now, I have a brother who's fully addicted to pepper. And there's no pepper out there that's hot enough for him. And he makes his own pepper sauce with the hottest, hottest, hottest ghost peppers and all kinds of crazy peppers that he, as a farmer, grows. And he carries it around with him because every bite of food he eats is covered in pepper because the pepper has now so destroyed his taste buds he can't taste anything. Oh, my. And that actually is already happening to you. If you don't experience the pain and the burning of pepper, then you've already lost a lot of taste buds. The good news is they will come back once you stop damaging them with pepper. Mm -hmm. Okay. One of the things that really made me understand pepper as an addictive substance was being with a group of herbalists in an Indian restaurant. There's absolutely nothing that I could eat in that restaurant. So I, you know, spent my time observing what other people were doing. And there was a wonderful herbalist who said, ordered a dish, and she said, I'll have that mild. And the, the male herbalist across the table from her said to the waitress, no, she wants it medium. And the male herbalist sitting next to her said, why don't you try it extra hot? <laughs> and she said, no, no, I want it mild. And they're, go they're going to the waitress, bring her medium. She wants medium. And I'm thinking, wow, this is exactly how addicts do it, isn't it? Huh. They try to get other people into their addiction <laughs> by pushing them. Oh, my. So the recovery from pepper is possible. Withdrawal is not hard, fortunately. You just have to go through a period in which everything is pretty tasteless while your taste buds regrow. Okay. And what usually pushes people to do this is that they wind up with some kind of inflammation, joint pain, something that's giving them enough of a problem that 
the idea of being able to help themselves simply by getting pepper out of their diet becomes attractive. Obviously, if there's nothing wrong and you're going along fine and you're addicted to pepper, well, my mom went along fine being addicted to tobacco until they diagnosed her lung cancer. I mean, she didn't have any side effects from smoking tobacco, right? Until she developed lung cancer. Well, you know, but she didn't like it. Didn't she didn't notice that it was hurting her lungs anymore? Hmm. And that's the nature of addictions: is that you own your body only tells you that it's hurting you at the beginning. And as you move along that addiction cycle, then you stop noticing that you're hurting yourself. Okay. And it becomes spicy and lively instead of burning and damaging. What I had understood you to say was that... uh, Pepper causes inflammation. Peppers cause inflammation. When you put it in your mouth, your mouth becomes inflamed. It burns and it hurts. Wouldn't you call that inflammation? Okay. When you swallow, it goes down your throat. Now your throat is inflamed and burning. Now it goes to your stomach. Now your stomach is inflamed and burning. Now it goes to your small intestine. Your small intestine becomes inflamed and burning. Now it goes to your large intestine, which becomes inflamed and burning. When I, by mistake, get something with any paper in it at all, it burns when it comes out of my body. Uh-huh. Wouldn't you call that inflammation? Yes. When people have joint inflammation, and I suggest that they stop eating pepper, and their joint inflammation goes away, would you say that that might indicate that pepper is the actual cause of inflammation? Yes, certainly, Susan. So that's what I see. That's what I experience. I don't find pepper tea useful for people who have refrigerators. Oh, wow. It's very useful for people who do not have refrigerators. Do you find a lot of pepper in the food from Sweden? Do the people who live above the Arctic Circle use pepper in their food? Do we have recipes with lots of pepper from Siberia? No. The places that eat pepper are places where the air temperature is very hot and there is no refrigeration. And you have to put pepper on your food to kill food-borne bacteria. Oh, okay. So we're talking Indonesia. We're talking southern India. We're talking southern China, Sichuan. As you get closer and closer to the Himalayas in both India and China, probably drops out of the diet. Oh. 
Okay. I remember being a teenager and growing up in Texas, and we would go across the border sometimes, although the border border was far from where I lived in Dallas. But we'd sometimes go, you know, and visit and cross over. And I remember going to a street vendor and getting a piece of watermelon. And the street vendor took that piece of watermelon and sprinkled cayenne pepper on both sides of it before handing it to me. Oh, Why on earth would the street vendor do that? Because the street vendor knew, which I didn't know, that the flies on that watermelon had just been on the human feces around the corner because people were defecating in the street. Hmm. Because there weren't any public toilets. And that if that street vendor didn't put cayenne on my piece of watermelon, I would have la torista, huh? I would get a gut full of bad bacteria and feel bad. Right. So in places without refrigeration, without toilets, where people are defecating in public places and there are insects going from that human feces to the food, you better put pepper on your food. Hmm. A little inflammation is a small price to pay for staying alive. Okay, I hear you, Susan. Okay. But I'm going to suspect that you have both a toilet and a refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope that clarifies it for you. Thanks for asking. Well, thank you for uh, informing me, Susan. I appreciate your taking time. You're welcome. Green blessings. Green blessings. Good night. All right. We have two callers that have pressed one to let us know that they have a question. The next caller with a question is calling from the 812 area code. From the 812, you are live with Susan. Hi. Hi, Susan. This is Arta. I'm calling with a couple of questions. So I'll start first with some tincture questions. Um, I'm kind of going through my apothecary and packing things up, and I found some echinacea root tincture that I made a pretty long time ago. And I see that it, like, more than 100 years ago? (laughs) Let's say two years ago. Two years and some change. And I see that. It's brand new. Are you kidding? Okay. It's barely so really even usable. Okay. Did so you make it with amazing. fresh echinacea? No. Or, or no. dried? Dried. With dried. I won't yeah. even use echinacea tincture from dried root until it's at least a year old. Okay, got it. Yes, I remember hearing you talk about this. So the question so I two, have... Two years this. old is nothing. I have echinacea tincture that I use that's 10 years old, 12 years old. Wow. Well, I look forward to the day where that's the case for me, too. Yeah. Um, okay. So it wants to go bad, right? It's alcohol. Cool. Good to know. And also it just makes investing investing feel, you know, safer in the sense that they last a long time. But the, they the last question a very is, long time. Now, if you put them in dropper bottles, the alcohol will evaporate out through the rubber dropper. 
1978, but I moved to where I'm living now over the next year. I took every tincture that I had made, and I hadn't been an herbalist for very long at that point, only like eight or nine years, but over a hundred tinctures I'd made, and I put them all in dropper bottles. No. And put them in rows alphabetically. Oh, no. Right? And over the next <laughs> five years, as I went to use those and I would pick them up, I would find my bottles empty. Oh, no. They just evaporated right up through the dropper. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, if you're okay. using it, right, and you're refilling the bottle, and you're not ever going to notice that happened, but it was just that they were sitting there, right? Because I had right. made oh my, my own kind of display of them. <laughs> like, okay. I have like so a now, physical response to hearing now that. Now I don't even decant them. I just leave the, you know, Got whatever it. the plant is and the alcohol together. Or if I do decant, I decant into apothecary bottles, lab bottles with a glass-on-glass stopper. Okay, yes. I remember you hearing, you telling the story about the, um, right. the old, old, old herb. Uh, tinctures that were found in the attic that were still there because they had the glass on glass. They had the glass on glass stoppers, yeah. Okay, and so the can, question you know, I those have... Bottles, those bottles are available. They're not like right. old-fashioned. They're used in labs right now. They're lab bottles, so you can get them. Sure, sure. Um, so the question I have about this echinacea, though, is that before I heard you talk about echinacea, I made this echinacea tincture, echinacea root tincture out of purpurea, dried root with 100 proof vodka. Oh, and I never have, Okay, so I was going to say, is it worth even it keeping? Was, like, from the first day, it was not good. Got it. From okay. the first day, what I would do is I would strain out the root and I would pour that vodka over echinacea augustifolia root. Got it. Okay, cool. Because I have some, I have augustifolia now, you know, I have learned. Um, I, but I. Just, I you don't have to throw the vodka out. Just put it over the right echinacea. Okay. Cool. Okay. Good to know. Okay. Yeah, okay I the second question. Why people okay. even sell dried purpurea? Got it. Good to know. And I just won't this, get that again. This big place, which is kind of, I think, trying to get me interested in their herbs, sent me a lot of their herb samples. And I wrote back <laughs> and I said, why on earth are you selling dried purpurea root? And they never wrote back to me. So I guess they well, didn't have any reason for selling it, just that they were growing it, so they were going to dry it and sell it. Right, right, yeah. Right. Caveat emptor, buyer beware, huh? Yes, <laughs> totally, yeah. Um, okay, the second question I have is about Chinese skullcap. Uh-huh. I, I, in your in Abundantly Well, I read about Chinese... No, Wait, go ahead. Hitularia bacillinensis. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, I haven't heard anybody say that out loud yet, so now I know how to say it. Um, I I was reading about this in your antiviral alternative section in Abundantly Well, and I also was reading about this in Stephen Herod Booner's book, The Herbal Antiviral. There's just a lot written there on Chinese skullcaps, and I looked up this plant to see, you know, okay, what does it look like? But I just have never come into contact with it or seen it. So trying to, I would like to develop. wild in North America. Okay. So you won't okay. be able to come into contact with it. What Stephen Booner says in his book is that the constituents and the bacillinensis are virtually the same as the constituents in the latera flora. The root, right? Yeah. And, and that he thinks that American herbalists 
are missing a trick by restricting ourselves to the flowering parts of the plant and that we should start digging it up and using the root. Okay. Okay. So that's what Stephen said. Has that made me start digging up skullcap root? No, it hasn't. Okay, because, you know... I'm I, so happy with like... the antiviral effects of hypericum. And hypericum okay, is so it. easy and I don't have to dig up any roots. And as we've said tonight, I always kind of like, when it comes to a perennial root, I'd like to say, is there anything else you could do, Susan? I mean, I use valerian flowers rather than dig the root. Sure. Okay. So I'm, you know, I, I will do my best to sidestep digging up a perennial root. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I I see. I I find a a lot written about all these more complex blends that are made with the Chinese skullcap, you know, and I hear you talk about simples and I I guess I just feel a little like overwhelmed by the Chinese skullcap herbal blend. Like there's all of this stuff going on in there, most of them that I'm not so familiar with. So I just I appreciate hearing that. No, the very first herb book that I ever got was Herbs and Things by Jeannie Rose. The first book that was about herbal medicine, I had read Yule Gibbons and Adele Davis and all kinds of other stuff. But the first, like, book that was an herbal was Herbs and Things by Jeannie Rose. And the very first recipe, I think, has, like, 25 different herbs in it. And I looked at that, and I shut the book, and I said, I will never be able to be an herbalist. Yeah, it just seems like, you know, really not accessible. Not that I feel scared of it but just like not really it's very complicated and again not even that I feel turned off by complicated things you know by default but just it doesn't seem very well, it took me a while to realize that was the intention I see okay the, the people who are making those blends don't want you to think that you know enough to do it right <laughs> because yeah. if you knew enough then you wouldn't buy their remedy yeah. If you yeah. knew that dandelion was really all you needed to have a healthy digestive system, you wouldn't buy their blend of a bunch of different herbs for the digestive totally. system. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, true. Right? And if you buy their blend and it works, <laughs> you're not then going to go dig dandelion root. You're going to keep buying their blend. Right. Which is, then you are dependent. Yes. Then you become a <sighs> consumer. Okay. And, hey, we are all consumers in one way or another, but having failed consumerism 101, I freely admit to being a very poor consumer and to <laughs> always look to see where I can not, not consume. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Okay, got it. Got it. Okay, so I got it about the echinacea and I got it about the Chinese school cap. So if there's time, I'll just ask one more. Right. So elder is as good an antiviral as Chinese skullcap. Okay. Okay, cool. It's, I have not, that. Like, I have it's not like if you don't use elder. Chinese skullcap, you don't have any antivirals. You have okay. hypericum. You have elder. You have the elder flowers we were talking about. You have elder berries. Okay. And are the antivirals um, to be taken prophylactically or only at the onset of symptoms? Many people over the year 2020 were taking elderberry prophylactically. And it's certainly none of them any harm at all. Okay. Do we have any study that shows that people who took elder got COVID less? No, we have no study that shows that. Is it possible? It's possible. 
did everybody have fewer colds and flus last year because everybody was wearing a mask? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I see. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking elder to help prevent. Um, I think about a past apprentice, and she was out walking with her two children who were both school age, and they're in a field. It was about this time, and the arrow was blooming. And she said, let's make a arrow tincture. And the kids said, what is that for? She said, well, oh, arrow's traditionally been used to help treat and prevent colds. And the kids said, yes, because, you know, when we go to school, there's a lot of sick kids, and we get a lot of colds. So they all gathered some yarrow and went home and made a yarrow tincture. And they kind of left it in the middle of the table where they eat their breakfast. And September comes and school starts and October comes and it's starting to get cold. And one morning, the younger one, I think this little boy who was seven or eight, said, I want some yarrow tincture this morning with my breakfast. <laughs> And they, you know, got out a dosage bottle and put some in a dosage bottle so he could put some in his juice or whatever he was drinking. And throughout the cold months and the school months, the yellow was there. And whenever either child wanted it, they had some with their breakfast and indeed passed the whole school year without getting a cold. I see. Yeah, right. Okay. But it wasn't like they okay. were taking it every day, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was there, and because it was there... When they when they got a sense that it would be useful, they took some. Okay, okay. Several people last year sent me um, elderberry syrups, and I put them in my refrigerator, and I see them every time I open the refrigerator, but I don't ingest them every time I open the refrigerator. Okay. There's just occasions when... I open the refrigerator and I see it and I say, I want some of that. And then I, then I ingest them. Okay. And it's not like even a thought. I'm not like thinking, oh, I'm worried I might this or that. I'm just, it's there and my body says, yeah, some of that now, please. Okay. 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 <laughs> and as okay. you get more cool. into it and surround yourself with more remedies, that becomes easier because it's the remedies that you have around you. And... You see them, and you'll say, oh, your body will say, oh, give me that. I want that thing, please. Okay. <laughs> right, yeah, I've experienced that a little right. bit, especially with the infusions. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, so if there's time, if there's time, I have one more, but if there's not time, um, I will just call back next week. I think there is time. Is there time, Sarah Ellen? Yeah, there's one other caller that has a question, so I think okay. there is, yeah. Okay, so I, I called in fairly recently, and I asked you about singing. And I was saying, I was sharing how I feel, you know, like it can't really, all right, I think that, now I'm, I'm unsure what word to use. But what you said in response really resonated with me, where you were decoupling thinking versus feeling and talking about, I think it was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross maybe, who spoke to you about, but I've been thinking about that. Um <laughs> And I just am, am asking you about how to apply that uh, principle to anxiety. And I've heard you say in the past, maybe you've never met or rarely met an anxious woman, but you have met angry women. And in thinking Actually, about my they, own anxiety. I've never met a depressed woman. 
You've never met a wife. I've met a I've lot had, of anxious oh, okay. women. I've women who are okay. anxious about being anxious. Okay, I see. Well, maybe I'm one and of them. And when we get and... an apprentice anxious, what we suggest is that she put a bottle of motherwort tincture in her pocket. Okay. And then she take five drops of motherwort tincture in the palm of her hand any time she's anxious, even okay. if that means okay. every five minutes. Got it. Cool. Okay. And yeah, in the vast majority of cases, um, within a couple of weeks, she's not feeling anxious at all anymore. Okay. So it's really the, having the relationship with that particular plant that might, with, well, might motherwort be useful. is Motherwort is one of three mint family plants that have very solid reputations for relieving anxiety. Okay. It's the one that grows most prolifically around me, and I like it because it does so many things. It's cardiac tonic, but um, lemon balm, Melissa officinalis, is yes. also considered to be very anti-anxiety. I tell, I retell the story of a woman who worked at a very high, highly stressful job and decided she was going to make some lemon balm tincture to help herself. And when she decanted it, the lemon balm said to her, you need to do this again. Take this take this tincture and pour it over fresh lemon balm. Oh, yeah, I've heard this. Right, which yes, is a double did. tincture. And then when she decanted that, it said again, and she poured it over a third batch of lemon balm. And then at the end, she took that, and she took just a few drops, and she said, you know, really, very quickly, she became totally unanxious. She said, you could have set off a bomb under me, and I would have directed the cleanup operation. <laughs> okay, okay, I see. So the lemon balm really, really worked for her, but she had a huge batch of lemon balm and could do that. Okay. Lemon balm and I, I don't know, we've just never hit it off. She's a little, like, I don't know, brassy for me, what can I say? And then lavender. Lavender is also used to relieve anxiety, and just the smell of lavender is used to relieve anxiety. Yes, right, okay. Right? Women used to carry a handkerchief of lavender scent on it to relieve their anxiety. Okay. We don't find the word anxiety as a medical condition until there were trains. And the first mention of anxiety as a medical condition was actually actually called train anxiety. Oh, that women became anxious around trains. Interesting. Hmm. And, of course, given that women are still still struggling worldwide for their human rights, it makes right. sense that we're anxious. Okay. Well, you know, of course, I don't. I want remember. To it, I remember somebody saying to Robin, "I feel this way. Why do I feel this way?" And Robin says, I "Feel that way because hundreds of millions of women on this planet feel that way." Okay. You're not alone," she said to us. She said, "You okay. feel what the planet is feeling, and you feel what every woman on this planet is feeling, and that's enough to make any woman anxious." Okay. Got it. Yeah, so you're on the right track because okay. that's more effective than anxiety is anger without a doubt. Okay. And it's not run amok anger. It's choose 
the place you want to make a difference and use your anger to make a difference there. Okay. Right? I've always been wowed by Melinda Gates, who said to her husband and who said to very rich people, give me your money so that I can relieve women's suffering. And they did. She got all these men to give her billions of dollars to do good. Uh, right. Yeah. I, right. I hear what that's you're saying. That's anxiety yes. turned into anger, turned into action. That's what that yes. that's the path we want, right? Yes. The fear without action really causes a lot of problems sometimes. You know, so I, yeah, I appreciate this. Look, you don't have to solve all the world's problems or you have billions of dollars at your excess. Right? <laughs> Focus on one thing you can make a difference, whether it's donating time or donating money or even just telling people about it. Right. You know, we, got to, we had an opportunity to write cards to encourage people to vote in an election in which it was very tight. And the... Uh, person who was more for human rights got elected because of that campaign. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, where you went to the site and you downloaded the text and you copied it and you put it on a postcard and they sent you the names and addresses. It was pretty easy to do. Yes. And right. it doesn't have to be that. It can be anything. I remember one man telling me that he read about this terrible disaster and he was so taken by it and he he just didn't think that the you know disaster relief was like good enough i think i i I, not sure but i think i recall that it was like when there was a hurricane in puerto rico and somebody like threw them paper towels do you remember that yes 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 he was just this, like, this is so inadequate to what's going on there. And he, right. just as an individual person, just started asking people to donate money for him to buy space blankets. And he, like, wound up buying something like 10,000 space blankets, which he shipped right. to Puerto Rico. Okay. Like, one simple action that he could do because he was upset about what was happening. Okay. And again... I'm not suggesting that anybody else has to do that. Just where does it take you? What do you want to do? Give yourself yes, sir. the right, give yourself the power. And interestingly enough, I was just reading about this little six-year-old girl who was upset about something. And she went from door-to-door in her neighborhood and got her neighbors to donate money to deal with the thing she was upset about. Right, yeah. <laughs> what a cute, don't, what a don't, cute don't and also powerful How many people are willing to help you if, you if you really get out there and say, let's change this? Yes. Yeah, I hear you. It probably helps okay, if you're well, cute and sick, but all of us can do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, okay, well, thank you. Thanks for the perspective, and I just appreciate all of it. A great blessings. Good night. You as well. Thank you. Good night. All right. And we have one more caller who has a question, and they are calling from the 352 area code. From the 352, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. This is Carol. Hi. Okay, and you? Calling from Tennessee. Um, 
I would like to ask you about your thoughts on sunscreen. On I, I know about this uh, Hypericum perforatum and using it infusing the oils for many years, but now there seems to be a very big push on the sunscreen, and I'd like to create some more conversation about exactly why there's such a push to use it. You almost have to counteract to say why being human existence has been this way. So why is sunscreen all of a sudden necessary? But I know you have something to say about sunscreens. Would you mind spending some time on that with me? One of the first things that I looked at was a chart of sunscreen usage. And you should be able to just go to the Internet and pull up a graph that will show you sunscreen usage, say, over the past 50 or 60 years. Go back to 1960 and let's see what it looks like over the past 60 years. And what we see is very low usage and then the usage starting to pick up and then the usage getting higher and higher and higher and higher so that you have a line going across those 60 years from left to right that is first close to the baseline and then begins to curve up and then very sharply curves up. And then if you call up a chart of incidence of skin cancer over the past 60 years, what you will see is almost exactly the same curve. Now, the people who see that curve with the skin cancer going up think that means then that more sunscreen has to be used since obviously the amount of sunscreen that's being used isn't enough. Crazy. But if I see two things that are going in parallel like that, I think there might be a cause and effect relationship. Which would not be that the sun's coming up because the birds are singing. Well, I'm not saying that it definitely is. I'm saying it's a possibility, just as it's a possibility that the sun comes up because the birds sing. Maybe <laughs> that. So and, and I was so never raised it, with sunscreen, and I was raised on the Atlantic. I never right? put any sunscreen on my children. I just usually just slathered them in oil because that's what we did up there. And now these children are having children, and they want to slather. Not that they want to, but there's a lot of dialogue around it. Right. And I just, you know, and I, this is a really good year for St. John's Wort. Jones Wort. Really it's good brilliant. year, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. It She's is. And I'm going north here. Here and there and here and there. Here and there. Yeah. Oh, it's just going to get better the further north I go, because the further north you go, the better the St. Jones Wort is. That's that I've so learned from true. When we all sit in Nova Scotia, our arms were red all the way to the elbows from the amount of oil in the plant. So I've harvested it only in southern Virginia and Tennessee and um, some Alabama, but it's really hard to find. But it was just like, oh, yay, I found some. So I went north, and I was in Stevenson, New York, and I was blown away by the bergamot and the St. Jones wort, how huge. It was, and it was screaming, take me. But when you're down here, it's almost like she says, you know, I'm over here. And you know, can you see me? Ah, you missed me. Sorry about your luck. <laughs> Up there, 
it seems to be, you know, like it's you got to hunt for her here, up there. She hunts for her too hot. Really yeah, she needs a cold winter. To be that strong, yeah. So as different as it is from Virginia to New York, it's that different from New York to Northern Ontario or Nova Scotia. The plants are that much bigger. It doesn't get better the further north you go. That's right. Because it is, isn't it a Mediterranean plant? It grows there, but it's not native to there. To, to, it's my understanding that it was brought over here. Go ahead. Was it brought over here? I'm not sure. I understood. But it does look more lovely the further north you go. I set my car for the bike route because you can kind of catch a glimpse. Just really fantastic. So That's let me great. ask you this. Do you, do, when you use this in the oil, and um, considering using it as a, you know, in the sun, when you guys, whenever, when the children, we all go to the beach or we're in the sun, whatever we're doing, would you prefer to use it in lard or, say, tallow? Be just preferably if you're really using it for the sun, straight up. Like, this is why I'm using it. The oil is easiest and pour it into your hand. If you um, want it to left. stick someplace, then you would use it in something like lard or tallow, which would be stiff and it would stick in a place. I had suggested right. to someone who had shingles that she apply hypericum oil to the area with the shingles. And her aide went out and bought hypericum ointment that was made in a hard fat, and it took her skin off when she applied it. Because the shingles had made her shingles had made her skin, you know, like burned. And then the stiffness of the hypericum just like ripped her. She was bleeding. And she called me and said the oil the hypericum oil made me bleed. I'm like, what? And I thought that, you know, that's, I had to, like, really talk to her to get the details because I couldn't imagine Hibericum oil making her bleed. Sure. Wasn't the oil. It was where it went to and it kind of made it worse before it got better and then cleared it out. No, it, it was that it was in a hard fat, like you're suggesting. Oh. The hard fat tore her skin up. Because if you do it in a hard fat, you're going to have to rub hard. Whereas the oil, you can just smooth it over your skin, right? What if you what if you um, proportioned it? Say some co- coconut, olive oil, and, and some tallow. The reason for using tallow is to make it hard. To make so the, that you don't have an oily beeswax or something. Right, exactly. Uh, okay. In situations in which people have gotten fungal infections from the beeswax. So some people prefer a ointment that's hard on its own without having to be hardened with beeswax. 
Oh, that's why it's always been traditionally used because towel has always been available. More exactly. so than, say, olive oil. Right. Right, right, right. Okay, so back to the... When, that, when, the, think, when the Australian Native women were showing their ointments to me, you know, and, and the student next to me said, oh, you know, they pounded the eucalyptus until they got the oil out of it. I said, no, they didn't. This is olive oil and beeswax. And she said, you know, the woman next to me is like insisting. So when it came, you know, for question time, I said, how did you make this? And they said, we put eucalyptus leaves in olive oil, and then we strained it out and thinking it was beeswax. (laughs) Right? And I said, and before you had olive oil, because olives don't grow in Australia. They said, oh, well, you know, you mean way back? I said, yeah, way back. What did you use? They said, oh, we used kangaroo fat. Kangaroo fat or emu or fish or something. Well, kangaroo fat is solid. The emu is an oil, right? Oh, you're right. They only stopped using kangaroo when there weren't enough kangaroos to go around. The government said you can't hunt kangaroo anymore. And then they started using emu, which is a pretty good substitute. They claimed that the kangaroo fat carried the remedy into the bone marrow, in other words, into the stem cells. Well, fat understands fat. We are animals. Right. We understand that. We are that animals. Stuff. Right. And they said that the emu fat would carry it to the bone, but not into the bone. Perhaps because so they, they made a real deal. And I said the olive oil, they said, works great on your skin. Now, when all is said and done, there's strong evidence that olive oil is a sunscreen. Okay. So we know that hydrochloric is a sunscreen. We put it in olive oil. We have two things that are a sunscreen combined together. And that's why I... And a sunscreen meaning what? Like, what is that word? I don't put in anything except olive oil. I might make okay. other ointments in things. I made some hypericum in goat fat, and I saw it sit on the shelf and not get used. All right. So you like because when I want hypericum, I'm usually going to pour some in the palm of my hand, rub my hands together, and rub it over a large and area. And rub it all over yourself. Gotcha. Okay. Right. And when I want it just for my lips, there's these great little rollerball applicators. Have you seen them? No. It's the size of a lip balm container, only when you open it up, there's a little roller ball. It's a little glass bottle. Oh, yeah, no, yes, ball. of course. Right, and of it just course. rolls it right on your lips. It's so easy. And I, you can oh, carry it. It, it doesn't is. leak, right? So you can put it on your lips and your cheekbones and your nose if you don't have a big bottle of it. Actually, I give those to the people when I come over to their homes to take care of a sick child or something, just to, like an oil for their ear, just that roller. It's just like, yeah, just roll it all over you, you know. Just roll it on. It's so much fun, isn't it? <laughs> it is great. It's a great, great invention. You can yeah, never have yeah. too many of those little rollies. This has right. been very helpful, Susan. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for your question. Good night. Good night. Green blessings. Green blessings. All right, and our guest is on the line with us. Well, didn't that work out perfectly? Yes. Jacqueline Kane is a medical intuitive and stop-the-pain specialist. She 
She supports women in discovering the crucial hidden links between their physical pain, their finances, and their ability to live a full life. She has over 20 years in private practice and over 35 years in healthcare. In fact, Jacqueline decided to merge her innate wisdom with a multitude of healing modalities to create a unique results-oriented method. She uses things like ancestral energy, hypnotic EFT, and all kinds of things that she has learned to get to the root cause that might be keeping you in pain, that might be keeping you from being invincible, and that might be keeping you from living your dream life. Welcome to the show, Jacqueline. Thank you, Susan. I'm happy to be here. I've loved the conversations already. Okay, great. I'm a, a little unclear about what you're saying. Are you saying that there's a crucial hidden link between physical pain and finance? Yes. Tell us more. That's fascinating. <laughs> I've never heard anybody well, say that. So well, are you saying pain... that are you saying that if you're rich you're not in pain? No. No. I'm saying that... If you're poor, you're not in pain. No, no, we know if you're poor, you're in pain. Correct. Right. I'm saying that the pain in the body is a sign and has a message for us. So when we slow down and tune in and start asking questions, then we can get to the root cause. But so many times we're busy and we're going through life and we don't take the time to slow down. So that pain only gets worse and becomes our main focus. But I don't understand how that's connected to finances. Well, there's certain areas of the body that can, that relates to pain. So I found when many of my clients come in and they have neck pain, usually they're worried about finances. They're worried they're not going to have enough. Some people who... Um, are getting ready for retirement can have joint pain because they're worried about not having enough in their retirement. Does that make sense? Yes, or hip pain because they don't think they can support themselves. Yes. And low back pain. So we're talking more about acute pain than chronic pain. Well, it's, it's both. If you let that acute pain go so long that it becomes chronic, then the finances and the health of the individual, basically the energy of the individual, decreases. And they find it hard to create money and wealth and income. And when we have that energy, I'm thinking about my friend Patch who uh, dealt for two years with the pain of a MRSA infection. Mm. And, you know, he's the least anxious, most grateful person I know. His pain was chronic pain caused by an infection, not by his finances. Correct. And in in those situations... That's what I mean between chronic and acute. Usually a chronic pain, in my experience, chronic pains generally have a direct physical cause and it's the acute pain that's more likely to have an emotional cause. Yes, 
the, there was sometimes there's an accident that causes the pain. And if we look at the individual who, like your friend, he, he was an optimistic person. Is that what you were saying? And yet he ended up with this infection. Patch Adams is one of the most grateful up people that I know. He's the smile doctor. Yeah. And at one of the hospitals where he was doing, you know, his clowning and helping people, he was infected with what's called flesh-eating bacteria. Mm. Yeah. Multiple resistant Mm-hmm. Staphylococcus, MRSA, mm-hmm. and he had that MRSA eating away at his leg for two years. Yeah. And he was in excruciating pain. He finally elected to have that leg mm-hmm. at the knee amputated mm-hmm. to get at the root cause. Mm-hmm. Because the root cause was MRSA. Yes. In that situation, the root cause was MRSA. So if we look at why he got that, sometimes in those situations... he puts himself in all kinds of dangerous situations in hospitals with people who are incredibly sick. Yeah. And there's other doctors who have been in that same situation and didn't get sick, correct? Most likely. But Um, in those situations... No no other doctor that I know that does what Patch does. He travels the world going to places where there's war and poverty and going into those hospitals and dealing with the sickest people in those particular instances. It's very unique work. Amazing. He sounds like an amazing individual. I'm surprised you don't know about Dr. Patch Adams. There's a whole movie been made about him. Oh, yes, Patch Adams. Yes, I do know that movie. Yes, I do. Um, and, And in those situations, I look at the ancestral energy and the connection, if there's been other members in his family that have ended up with similar things like that. Mercer's pretty modern. Mercer's quite modern. It's unlikely okay. we're going to find that many. But okay. I hear that, especially when people are like changing the terms of their life and they're retiring or getting married or getting unmarried or having kids or suddenly the kids are grown, that acute pains rise up in the neck and the back and the shoulders and the joints and that if those are just treated as pain that you're really just skimming across the surface and that what you're encouraging people to do is to look for a deeper connection. Yes, look under the surface, right? So if we want to heal the physical, the emotional, the spiritual, the energetic, we have to look under the physical pain to look at the emotions, the energy that the person is carrying. And this is especially for people who have tried so many different things and they're still in pain. They've done the physical therapy. They've done maybe even surgery and they're still in pain. And that's when you have to look at the emotions underneath it and even the energy that they're carrying. And where is that, what is the energy? And then we, have to, we can clear that. And when we look at the ancestral energy, there's so many pains that have been passed down. For instance, those families that say, oh, everybody in my family has bad hips, or everybody has low back pain, or everybody has congestive heart failure. 
So these things are passed down from one generation to the next, and then it becomes the truth of the family. Mm. So we repeat it by constantly saying, yeah, that's just how our family is. That's just what happens, right? Or if somebody no, I, had financial distress. I often say that you, in order to be a member of that family, you have to have that malaise. Absolutely. Yes. Because we don't want to be outside of the family, right? We want to be included in right. the tribe. We want to be it's, included in the tribe. You think that there are four major areas that these kinds of ancestral things impact, yes? Yes. Could you it tell impacts, us more about those? Yeah, it impacts your health, your wealth your ability to have deep connections and relationships, and your ability to stand in your power. And so many people are afraid to stand and own their power, to set really good boundaries, to put themselves first. And usually it's because we've been trained not to. We've been trained to be in the family in a certain way, and it's hard to move past that. So like I described, you know, maybe your family has low back pain and that's being passed down in finances. Maybe somebody in your family um, went bankrupt, maybe tried to open their own business and it didn't go well. And then you come along in your family line and you do the same thing and you end up with the same situation where you're unable to make the impact that you wanted to. So it's a red flag. It's something to look at if that pattern keeps happening in the family. Or if, you know, Johnny is unable to find the love of his life and people in that family don't have, are unable to have really good marriages and connections and relationships and find the love. And is that something that's been passed down? Well, we certainly know that childhood trauma is enacted on the children of those people and that it keeps passing down from generation to generation. But one of the things that I've seen is that each generation gets a little wiser about the trauma and the pain and does their best to pass less of it down. Mm. It's so wonderful. Yeah, yeah I, well, I, I have actually seen what we want a lot of it over the past 50 years because 50 years is enough to see a couple of generations and to see mm-hmm. people really get a beat on that and say, this is what goes on in my family and this is what I'm not going to do. Yes. I mean, just for me personally, my mm-hmm. parents were pretty typical parents for the 50s. You know, we were beaten with a belt. We were mm-hmm. hit with paddles at school. There was a lot of physical violence in my childhood because that mm-hmm. was accepted yes. and thought to be useful. Mm-hmm. I yeah. hit my daughter exactly once as a child, and it was because she was about to pull a four-gallon pot of boiling water onto <laughs> her head and I could not reach her in time, and I was washing a spatula, and I reached out and smacked her with the spatula to keep her from pouring the boiling water on her head. Yeah. <laughs> and I still remember that I hit her. I because my goal was to never hit my child. I did hit her, and I justify it because I would, you know, would prefer to hit her than have her be burned, but it still bothers me that I hit her. 
Yeah. So right yeah. there, just in one generation, and of course, she's never hit her daughter. And so that's yeah. gone from our family now, that whole that's idea. Wonderful. That's have wonderful. To be Not just my family, but in you know, thousands of family, which that's gone now. Yeah. That idea the children had to have to be controlled in that way by physical punishment. Mm-hmm. I'd spare the rod and spoil the child. <laughs> well, I see it today in um, children with autism and Asperger's. Those children need positive reinforcement, and that really helps them in school, which is different than what most of us have been raised on. So it sounds like we were raised in the same same kind of environment. I don't know. You know, the prejudices that I'm getting coming out of the school systems um, are uh, – they're obese with praise. Um, no. It's disgusting. I'm sorry. There's just too much of it, way too much to get praised for anything, you know? They part their hair a different way. They get praised for it. It's non-functional. And it makes them look to others always for their own self-esteem. And you never get self-esteem from others if you're so geared into getting praise. As a matter of fact, we tell them that you, you should never pay for praise. Praise should be free. But you should pay for criticism because criticism mm-hmm. is what's going to get you get you forward. Now, I'm an autistic person, and I will tell you that most of the time when people praise me, I know as an autistic person that they're lying through their teeth and doesn't really work for me as an autistic person. Autistic people are very very sensitive to lies. They're amazing, yeah, and they're very sensitive to seeing the truth. Exactly. Yeah, and I love it. My son is is autistic, and it's amazing. He taught me so much about respect. And when we respect so it's not, him, it's not praise that we want; it's validation. Respect. Yeah, it's very different than praise. In other words, it took me a long time to realize that I did know what was going on because people kept telling me I didn't, and that I was wrong, wrong, right. wrong. Right. 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 And no amount of praise. It's going to change that. It, I just had to, to to get enough experiences and have good enough teachers that I saw. Mm, no, I am. I really am seeing. I was sitting right next to Elizabeth Kubler Ross, and this young man came up at work, and he stripped down so that he was naked to the waist, and he picked up the rubber radiator hose, and he had two on the phone books, and pages were flying, and he was screaming and sweating and crying, and it was a big, rah, 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 because he was young and strong and yeah, right? And I'm in my head, I'm going, he's faking, he's faking. And at the same time, of course, because you do that, I'm going, you bad girl, stop that. Look at him. He's working so hard. Why are you saying that he's faking? Oh, my goodness, you're terrible. You know, and finally at the end of it, he just collapsed, right? And Elizabeth looked at him with her incredible glare, and she said, very dramatic. If you're ever willing to be honest, I hope you come back up here and dismissed him. And I went, oh, I really didn't know what was going on. And I shut myself up because everybody else in my life had shut me up. And I learned not to shut myself up right then and there. 
because she was willing to tell him the truth. Very dramatic, but you were faking it. Wow, what an amazing adventure you have with your son. How old is your son now? Hi, are we still connected? I do see her number. I don't know why we're not hearing her. Well, Jackie, if you can hear us, we can't hear you. Sometimes what works is for you to hang up and call in again. Okay, her call has dropped, so maybe she's trying that. Here we go, and it looks like she's back with us. Hey, Jackie. <laughs> Hi, I don't know what happened. That's okay. How old's your son now? He's 23. Oh, great. What's his name? Uh, Andrew. He went on Andrew, to college. Andrew, wonderful. Yep, became an accountant. <laughs> yep. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I love Incredible. all the autistic kids. They are so smart and brilliant. They're going to change the world. Well, we, of, we of course, think that we're the wave of the future. <laughs> I don't know if any other autistic person has told you that. But we think that this is, this is, that this is the evolving of the human brain. <laughs> yes. We don't think we're damaged. We think we're better, actually, but that's okay. <laughs> Tell us about hypnotic EFT. I know that EFT stands for Emotional Freedom Technique, but I'm not sure that our listeners are familiar with that or what hypnotic EFT would be. And I think they, they would be really fascinated if you could tell them more about it. Yeah, so EFT, or Emotional Freedom Technique, or also known as tapping, is a very powerful mind-body tool to help us heal the trauma, to help us heal the fear and the anxiety that we live with all the time, and to shift into a new way of being, to release the fear so that we can start trusting our intuition and to just be more grounded. So I use these tools also to help people get out of pain because when we look at the, again, when we look at the emotion under the physical pain and we deal with the worry and the concern, and we use EFT, a client is able to actually get to the root cause of the physical pain and end up having no pain. Now, it's not overnight, but when they use this tool on their own on a daily basis, they are absolutely able to release the pain and heal the body so that they can live pain-free and get back to living their life. So that's pretty much standard tapping or EFT, but you have added the word hypnotic to it. How does that change it? Yes, because I use a lot of visualizations and past life regressions in my work. So when I do that, we use uh, the visualizations and the words and the energy. I use that in the tapping so that we can heal and reframe the old stories. And it's a much more powerful event so that people can shift faster and easier. 
and quicker. I don't know a lot about EFT, but I know that the tapping takes place in certain patterns. Correct. It, we use the uh, meridians of the body, so we're using acupressure points, and we're tapping on those acupressure points, which affect different organs and different parts of the body. For example, there's one um, at the bottom of the ribcage, which is great for anger, releasing the anger in the body. Um, there's other ones for the sides of the hand. All these points, when you tap them in a certain way, in a certain rhythm, relaxes the, the nervous system. And then when we relax the nervous system, it's kind of, we, we do enter into a kind of hypnotic state so that we can, um, we can retrain the brain and shift it into thinking more positive thoughts. Because we have 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day, and most of those thoughts are not positive. They're negative, and they work against us. So when we use these tools, we're able to magically just allow the positive thoughts to come through our lives, through our mind, and then create our life from that thought. So the hypnotic part of it is a visualization and maybe even a mantra. Mm-hmm. It can so be a mantra, just, yeah. Rather than just tap, tap, tap and thinking tap, 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 you know, we're thinking I am sacred, I am sacred, I am beautiful, I am beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I am safe and I can do this and life is easy and I am magnetic. Yeah, so these people really have, um, usually in the office, we record these sessions also so that the client can leave there with these mantras and these tapping scripts that, are, that resonate specifically for what they're working on at the time. And that's what makes EFT very powerful when it resonates to the person. Yes, yes, quite amazing. I have been dealing with um, an awful lot of pain since my surgery. And um, to see if I could move past the last of this, I decided to explore hypnosis, which is why I was interested in um, what you were talking about with the hypnotic EFT. And I went so far as to search out people in my area, write down their names, write down all their phone numbers, but I never actually called them. (laughs) But that was enough so that I woke up the next morning almost pain-free. Oh, my gosh, that's awesome. You have a powerful mind. We all have a powerful mind, you know, and I'm looking at these thinking, but I'm not, but I'm probably, they're probably not going to be able to hypnotize me because I have, you know, such a strong mind that, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. easy to hypnotize everybody. And so I thought, how clever that my body just said, you want to be hypnotized? (laughs) We'll hypnotize you. (laughs) So clever. So clever. They sawed off my they sawed off my coccyx, and for the first four or five months, anytime anybody said the word coccyx, I would burst into tears. 
I felt so bereft. They took a lot of pieces from me, but for some reason, the grief really centered around my coccyx. And then I realized that people have phantom limbs, and golly gee, if they have a phantom limb, I can sure have a phantom coccyx. And as soon as I started creating a phantom coccyx, I was happy again. Brilliant. Wow, that's an amazing story. And and you you could even just visualize growing another one, right? I don't think so, since they cut <laughs> it out, since there was cancer next to it. I think any thoughts of growing, I'm not going to put in that area. Thank you. <laughs> well, at least your pain is gone. That's all that matters. <laughs> well, not all my pain is gone. They they had 17 hours to create places of pain in my body. They did a good job. More teams of well, surgeons. <laughs> that's a long Cut time. Sod, cauterized, did everything they possibly could. The good news is I am completely cancer free. As a matter of fact, they kicked me out the door and said, don't even bother to come back for follow up. <laughs> <laughs> we hope to never see you again. Go away and let us deal with these other people. <laughs> so, what haven't we talked about that you really wanted to talk about in this conversation? Um, basically just to have people to really investigate their pain and we can all heal ourselves. Everything we need is inside of ourselves. We just have to trust it. But if they want some help, like from you, they get in touch with you. They can find me at my website, JacquelineMCain.com. It's K-A-N-E. E-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E-M-K-A-N-E. J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E-M-K-A-N-E. Jacqueline Kane, M. Jacqueline M. Kane.com. And they can also find me on my Facebook group, Healing Circle by Jacqueline Kane. Healing Circle by Jacqueline Kane. All right. Well, we have come just about to the end of the show, and this is the time when I ask you what you would like to leave in the hearts and the minds of everyone who's been listening to you and getting some new ideas and some interesting ideas. What do you want to leave them with, Jacqueline? I'd like everybody to know that they are worthy, that they do matter, and they are special And if you're living with any kind of pain, you keep searching until you find the right answers. Hmm. Ah. Ah. Those are wonderful, wonderful words and thoughts to take into our hearts and to hold there and to remind ourselves that we are special and we are unique and that all of the energy from the whole universe came together to create you And there'll never be another one of you. Every single one of us, like a snowflake, special, unique, precious. And you help people to live that, to express that, to, in fact, be their authentic self, yes? Mm. Yes. Yeah. I envision that we are reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients. Mm. 
that as we go through our days, as we interact with people, as we share, that the shuttle moves through this tapestry. And when you see the images of the women who wove those huge tapestries, there are so many different shuttles that they're working with. And it's like that sometimes, isn't it? You do a little a little bit of this green and pick up a different shuttle and do a little bit of another green, and you certainly exemplify that, casting such a wide net and bringing so many things in and into bear in the, the discovery and healing that you offer to people. Jacqueline M. Kane, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for participating in this reweaving of the healing cloak. I appreciate you. And Sarah Ellen, thanks for helping me restore herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine. Herbal medicine is a medicine right outside your door. And wow, get out there because it's blooming this year. Green blessings, everybody. Good night. <laughs>